0: I'm not a business leader, I'm a design leader. It's quotes like this from VMware's head of design, Jahad Afone, that are one of many reasons why we love the insights and tactics that he's shared over the course of our conversations. In this discussion, we speak with Jahad about how he measures the impact of design and aligns design goals with engineering goals. We learn why he thinks it's important to lead with
1: context
0: and how he goes about ensuring that the diverse voices on his team are heard. If you're looking to level up your skills as a business leader and do it with the empathy and curiosity of a design leader, look no further than this chat with Jihad. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. Before we dive into our interview with Jihad Afone, we have a special roundtable for you this episode. No doubt many, if not all of you, are facing an impact at work and at home from the COVID-19 outbreak. First and foremost, we want to send our best wishes to you and your families and hope that you all stay safe and healthy in this time of uncertainty and anxiety. We also know that many of you may be in a situation where you're now working remotely and perhaps live events that you had scheduled to attend, host, or participate in have been canceled or postponed. We thought it would be helpful to share the story of a recent in-person event that our team here at Envision had to turn into a virtual one and some of the surprising things We learned making that change. So today we've got some really special roundtable guests. We've got Brian Carden, our chief marketing officer, and Katie Baker, our senior program manager. So Envision recently had an interesting thing happen to us. Like many companies, we were forced to turn an event remote. But unlike many companies, we were already fully distributed. So we had a little bit of an advantage in that respect. But that doesn't mean it was necessarily an easy thing to do. So I wanted to bring in Brian and Katie and and talk a little bit about the decision-making there and the process and what it took to get us to what ended up being a very, very successful event. And I think maybe to start things off, Brian, you could talk a little bit about what the event was originally intended to be and the decision around changing it to a, a virtual event.
2: Yeah, sure thing. So, you know, we were barreling away towards a uh, an annual kickoff. A lot of companies have this with their sales team, the marketing team, about 300 people, Orlando, Florida at a big hotel, a lot of bonding, presentations on the stage. Of course, a lot of drinking, camaraderie, people get to see each other. These events are very special for most companies. It's especially important for us because we're fully distributed, as you said, Eli, and so we're not together very often. So I think everyone's interest and excitement was just building and building And then we had to reach a very hard decision whether to go ahead with it or not. And the timing was, we were just sort of on the cusp, like events weren't being canceled at this point. There were just a few cases in the U.S., but we made the hard decision to say, let's cancel the event and just convert it over to a virtual event. And that started a whole chain of events. So I was lucky to partner up with Katie. Katie was doing all of our planning, all the coordination for a live event. And literally 10 days before it was scheduled, Katie and I talked about refactoring everything, all the presentations, interactions, you know, how do we take an event that was going to be physical and make it virtual? So Katie,
0: how did that that make you feel, that decision?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I actually, before this interview, went back and looked at, at the calendar and it was actually just four business days that we had to turn this around, which at the time felt crazy. As Brian said, there weren't many other companies that had made the decision at that point. Of course, as the days passed and as we saw sort of the situation evolving and other companies making similar decisions, it was, of course, reassuring to know that we had made the right one. But thinking about all of the plans from all of the supplies and signage and printed material that we had shipped to the venue to all of the presentations that our team members had been developing for an in-person on-stage experience, thinking about making that pivot to virtual was really intimidating. Our organization, although we live and breathe remote life, had not ever held a three-day, 250-person, multi-hour-a-day event before. And so we were all prepared to do what it took to, to make it work. But, you know, of course, we're very nervous since this was the first time any of us had ever attempted to pull anything like this off.
0: Brian, on your end, and you wrote about this on an article on LinkedIn, which we'll, we'll link to, there's a little bit of anxiety on your end as well,
2: right? Yeah, completely. There's no playbook for this. Um, at our company, we have done two or three hour virtual meetings but we're talking over three days and try to simulate what a live experience would be over multiple days. So it's never been done before. And so uh, I was very nervous about the whole thing and uh, not quite sure how it all worked. But I'll tell you, there were so many unintended consequences. One thing is the team really came together and everyone just turned up their creativity. And we thought about how to refactor all these presentations and so uh, how to make it interactive, get further engagement. And there were So many interesting things that happened. One is, you know, on Zoom, which is a platform we used, everything is recorded. We recorded everything, and now we have all the presentations available, and Eli, that's going to help us with all the onboarding of new employees. It's going to help her with refreshing. So much great content we have recorded, and we never would have paid for a big video crew in Orlando because everyone was there live. And what happened was, is obviously the people in Australia, some of the people in Europe couldn't join us in real time, so they participated by listening to the recordings the other one was the super high levels of engagement here that i wasn't expecting you know when people are on a stage and there's live music and everything i thought people are engaged but as we thought about it you know you're in a big auditorium you're looking at the back of someone's head who's sitting in front of you you're squinting trying to see the slides and here you know you're looking at a screen um you have the chat function so there's this whole other series of communications happening you know when you're a speaker on a stage you just get applause you get some laughter you don't get that much feedback. But as a presenter, you're getting literally thousands of chats. And it was very exciting for the presenters to see in real time as they're presenting, like the audience really getting excited or having questions. So it felt very participatory and the engagement levels were unbelievable. And so all these interesting things sort of happened. And Katie and team came up with all these funny things. Like we did a session. Well, why don't you talk about some of the guests at that desk or cribs or some of the other things you guys came up with, Katie?
3: Yeah, absolutely. We pulled a a team together really quickly to think of the, you know, sort of the fun humanizing elements that we could bring to a virtual experience. And there were some really great ideas that when we executed them, I think went off really well, including a game of Guess That Desk. We had People take pictures of their desk and we put them on slides and essentially had an MC moderate the game at the beginning of each morning session. We had a really quick turnaround of some envisioners doing envisioner cribs tours, showing everyone around their homes and offices. And it was really cool to be able to have sort of that level of, of intimacy and, and a peek into people's lives. We integrated just a lot of music. We had everyone essentially contribute to a Google slide deck, just of pictures of of their life outside of work and had that rotating through during breaks as we came in and out of breaks. We tried to integrate some of the live things that would have been live on stage. For example, our two MCs because we were going to Orlando, we're planning on showing up for the first session for their big reveal in costume. And while one of our MCs was located in Australia and unfortunately couldn't be with us, you know, in real time when we were doing this virtually, the other MC, Emily Campbell, from our Design Transformation team, put on her Cinderella costume, full <laughs> Cinderella costume, um, and showed up for us. We played some, you know, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo intro music and cut to her on screen and it was... It was pretty hilarious and I think set a really light tone and fun tone for the rest of the event.
0: You Looking back at the event, there was obviously the, the con of not being able to see each other in face, which we, as a distributed company, just don't get to do that often. But aside from that, and this is open to both of you, do you feel that we got what we needed from the event?
2: I was so surprised. It's not a cost issue. It's just so efficient to do it this way. You know, when Katie and I were talking about the live event, you have to build in breaks. And so I said to Katie, can we do 15-minute breaks? She said, Brian, it's a huge hotel. By the time they go to the bathroom, they grab some a bottle of water, they sit in their seat. It's a half hour. So these huge breaks that happen. And then there's all this like people coming up the stage and going down. So this refactoring really made it super efficient. We saved you know over a couple hundred thousand dollars in plane tickets and everything. So I'm not sure that I would do it any differently
3: from my perspective of working really closely with the presenters, I think there is such a difference of presenting on stage in front of a group of 300 sort of blank faces staring back at you with lighting and big screens and, you know, you're holding a slide advancer, wearing a lav mic versus presenting from the comfort of your own home. And just having that alone, having the nerves of that taken away from our presenters, I think, I was so impressed with the level of energy and engagement that our presenters had that I don't think would have necessarily been as high if we had been live and in person. I think there's just a nerves factor that plays into a performance like that. There were so many amazing things about this experience that surprised me that I am super excited to see where we take our virtual events in the future.
0: One last question to tie things up, and this is again to both of you. If you were somebody facing this sudden change from a, a live event to an online event, what's one piece of advice you'd give that person?
3: From my perspective, from the, the planner point of view, especially when it comes to all of your presenters and, and people who are participating from the presenter or video point of view, Communication is key. One of the things that that we did on the days of the event was we set up specific Slack channels just for the speakers that were speaking on that day and essentially made those channels our way to stage manage the entire run of show for that day. And so, you know, communication is key, making sure people feel prepared because this isn't for most people, a natural thing that they're about to do, and making them feel confident in that they don't, when they're going to share their slide deck, don't say, okay, now I'm about to share my slides. Now I'm about to do this. They can just do those things. And the technology will, 99% of the time, support them in doing that. So to make them feel as confident and as natural as possible was, I think, one of the things that made our event feel professional and like it had always meant to be virtual.
2: Yeah, Katie did a great job. The Slack channel is like a green room. So it was like preparation for speakers and just warm up and any tips or anything you need. And it was just exactly like a green room, except it's a Slack channel where we tell people you're on in five minutes or a couple of minutes, or we've had a change or, or the schedule's changing. The one thing for me, Eli, and Katie knows this well, that I was worried about is the technology working. There's a lot of bells and whistles, and you need some technologists on your team who have used the advanced features of particularly Zoom. There's a lot of advanced features, but you know, simple things like if if someone's making noise and has their microphone on, how do you silence it? Or how do you do breakouts? Or, you know, how do you control certain things? Video is a big good example. A lot of people had video and I think Zoom can be a little temperamental. And so you have to test everything and find out the best way to do video, particularly with audio sharing. You know, there are different channels on Zoom. So having someone who has deep technical expertise, and what Katie and team did is they do run-throughs. They ran all the videos through it. They simulated it. So uh, we did a lot of these simulations with the technology the day before, just like a tech run-through, just like you would the morning of an event or the day before, you would do a tech run-through on a stage live. She did a tech run-through with the team on Zoom to see if everything played and everything worked well. So I was worried about the technology.
0: Well, that's a wonderful place to wrap things up. Brian and Katie, thanks so much for being on Roundtable and sharing your stories. Thank you. Thanks, Eli. And now let's move over to our interview with Jihad Afone, Senior Director and Head of Design at VMware.
1: Jihad Afone, welcome to the Design Better podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Jihad, we've been talking for a couple years now because you've joined us at Design Leadership Camp, it's a small kind of intimate gathering of design leaders where we talk about the things that we're struggling with and uh, figure out how to unlock some solutions to those challenges. And you've shared a lot of interesting things that I want to jump into here. But first, I think it's useful to maybe start at the beginning, if you could just talk to us about life growing up,
4: and what was that like? Because I'm curious how that informs your work today. I spent most of my life in Palestine throughout from first grade to high school. And growing up, my interests were more around writing and journalism more than anything else. Partially because of the situation in Palestine and telling the story was a big part of my life. But also part of it is that that was the creative outlet. Writing was the creative outlet at the time. The internet wasn't as big of a thing, it was slow, so sharing in other formats wasn't really possible. Writing was the easiest thing to get out there. And as I started writing more, I started realizing that the best way to share rewriting is and go have dozens of people read it versus a few people read it. There wasn't hundreds or thousands, but dozens at least of people read it, is the internet, is to share on a website or to create a website at the time, the tools were not that great. So I started learning coding as a way of, I want to build my own website just so I can put my writing out there. So coding was the means to an end. And as I started doing this, to me, coding became very interesting. So I would spend more time writing code than writing. And that became interesting on its own, regardless of what I want to publish. That became an interesting thing on its own. So I started when I was, I think, 14, 15, I started a news website uh, at the time. And I was my own. Reporter and producer and customer service and website creator and programmer. We and I'm doing air quotes. We had different names and different titles, but it it, it was pretty much the same person. My dad really spent a lot of time with me, so it was a bonding exercise between my dad and I as well. Mm. So I would come back from school, I'd do my homework. He'd come back from work, and then we spend you know 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. just writing and publishing and and coding and yeah. Your your dad was cool with you staying up until 4 a.m. and then going to school. I think he enjoyed it as much. We did it for a few days, then it became 2 a.m. because both of us needed to be awake at some point. And I think a lot of my memories of that time are not just positive. you know, I remember that time fondly, partially, because I was learning a new skill and enjoying it. I was spending a lot of time with my dad on something that we're working on together. And I was actually producing stuff that people started reading more and more of. So what were you writing? What were you publishing at 14 and 15? We started with news stories. So we would take news stories that are happening mostly locally and then write around it and publish it. Obviously, it was really hard to be big news agencies to the news, so we focused more on local news stories happening in cities in Palestine, because that wasn't really as highlighted in global news, obviously.
1: And are these? Are you talking to people that you know in your neighborhood and Pretty that sort much, of thing? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah.
4: Okay. Um, and we created a few tools that, for example, I saved some money and I bought a, uh, another SIM card at the time, like another number, and we had that number on the website to say, if you have a tip anywhere in Palestine, you can text that number your tip and we'll verify it and then we'll publish it. At some point, we had dozens of text messages a day to sort through. It became the place you drop tips because, you know, for citizen journalism, wasn't a, much of a thing back home at the time, but it offered a venue for people to, a lot of the time, vent. So what they report is not necessarily news in the grand scheme of news, but things happening in their local community. Then we started writing articles and political articles. Part of it was because writing articles and opinion columns was unique on its own. You didn't have to beat anybody to an opinion article versus beating someone to the news. There were probably 40 authors on the website. In reality, there were like four or five. But we would write different names to give the perception of reality. Fake it till you make it.
1: Was this dangerous in any way? You know, thinking about... Writing in Palestine about political opinion, it seems like that's not necessarily a safe activity for a young person.
4: I don't think it was dangerous in the context of the local community, I think, or at, l- at least at the same time, I didn't think about it that way. It was dangerous in terms of political opinions that were against the occupation or that might have been seen as a form of resistance. Mm-hmm. Thinking back about it, it's funny, when you have a lot to lose, you think about things differently. At the time, I didn't really spend too much time thinking about is it dangerous or not because the environment around me was dangerous enough that the calculation wasn't really there. I think that a lot of things we do when we don't calculate open a lot of space for us that we wouldn't do if we actually sat down and calculated the risk. That's true even for business and jobs and, and so on and so forth. But I started writing our articles and we started getting reporters. At the time we finished this, when I went to college, I started having to actually focus on computer science. We had 30 plus reporters in 30 plus countries who are volunteers working on the website. We had more articles that we can publish. We had a peer review system where people would edit for each other because we couldn't read everybody's articles. So we would have a way where people can read articles from each other. We had tens of thousands of unique users a day reading news and articles on the website. So it grew very, very significantly in the two or three years that we were working on it.
1: And was it generating revenue at all?
4: From there we kind of created a network of websites, so the news kind of website remained a a big part of it, but we started also doing things like, the time file sharing was a big deal. You had all the, I forgot the names, but I think like Mega Upload and Rapid Share and all of these things where people shared files was a big deal because Dropbox didn't exist. So you had one of those sites that was extremely popular in Palestine and the Middle East. We generated revenue more from these sites than the news website. But at the time, most of the revenue, I would say, if not all of it, went into buying more servers. AWS didn't exist, so you would, you, know, right. you would go to SoftLayer and rent actual hosts and rent them for 30 days, pay in advance, and then try to make advertising money to cover for it. It's funny how things have changed. Right, and ironically, you're at VMware today, so yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this technology is pretty, pretty easy to come by. That's actually interesting, because I think a lot about that time and the difference in how we do things as part of my job today having been part of what is the alternative really helps in the perspective of what could happen.
1: Let's talk a little bit about, I'm going out on a limb here, but probably not a lot of other 14 or 15 year olds you were hanging out with were as ambitious and as involved in an endeavor like this as you. So there's some initiative that you have. You also talked about this risk calculation that is kind of part of your thinking from this young age. How do the lessons that you learned working on publishing as a young man, how does that inform your work
4: today? I think it does in many different ways. It it stuck with me that most of the time, if you build it, they'll come, is true. And most of the time, it's how long are you willing to take that journey alone or with a very few people till others decide to join you on the journey because what seemed like a very long time, nobody was sending us articles, very few people were reading. This is months and months of very late nights and very low readership, very low number of people sending us stuff to publish. And then it skyrockets. That remained with me, which is you got to jump face first and then believe in it for it to happen. Obviously, that's not always true. I've jumped face first into a lot of stuff that didn't work, but it's still something that stuck with me. The other one is, I think there's probably a combination of different things besides just that specific experience. I think living in Palestine has taught me a lot about leadership in many different ways. Not having the structure we have in the US, not having the same processes that have been already defined and followed, sucks most of the time, but at the same time, enables an opportunity for you to come in and set these processes up. So where things are not organized, Coming in and organizing things and being the one that can bring clarity to ambiguity becomes part of the job, because otherwise you can't achieve what you want. And that remains with me. Coming to a messy situation, analyzing it, figuring out where I need to be in three, four, five years, and then starting to draw the path from there. It has probably some roots to the way I grew up and, and where I grew up. The risk one is another one where I think risk has a different definition to different people based on a lot of different factors, including what you have to lose, your experiences previously, your experience even with risk and how much was the reward and so on and so forth. To me, a lot of risk that I take on daily basis that others might shy away from is very little risk. Because in my mind, when I think about risks that I've taken throughout my life that were truest risks growing up, putting it into perspective, whatever risk I'm doing today is okay. Having that perspective, having that background, has really helped in, in reorienting what does risk mean. And to some extent, actually reorienting what stuff do I actually spend time worrying about and what stuff do I not. Yeah.
1: Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry leading 15 year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DesignBetter5 for 5% off your order. That's U P L I F T. Desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. I've heard you say, I'm paraphrasing here, but like, what do I have to lose? You know, I'm going to try something out. I'm going to put in my best effort. I'm going to try this out. This seems a little bit risky. I'm going out on a limb, raising my hand for some leadership thing or pushing. This could be a managing up thing, any number of, of things in your career. But that perspective of growing up in Palestine, like, what do I have to lose? It's all comparatively less risky.
4: And by the way, I think you don't have to grow up in Palestine to have that perspective. I think all of us have, we talked about context offline before we started this conversation. I think a lot of time, things seem a lot more risky while you're in them versus if you stepped out and looked at them objectively, even if you're the one in it. A lot of my conversations with my team and others Start with, what do you have to lose? What's the worst thing that can happen if you do this? And if the answer, you know, well, we might lose a day worth of work, is that risk worth it? And the chances are, probably is. So in the middle of it, it sounds like, oh my God, we're under pressure, we got to move forward, eight hours worth of work. But in reality, if instead of doing this, I told you we're going to do a team event tomorrow, would you join? And if the answer is yes, that's exactly the same risk that you're taking here, which is taking a day off, or whatever the risk calculation is, it just sounds a lot worse when you're in the middle of it.
0: One of the other attributes that really stood out from your story is this kind of scrappiness, this idea like, okay, we're gonna take this revenue, this affiliate revenue, or whatever it was, and you know, pay for our service <laughs> for a month ahead. And from our other conversations, it sounds like you've taken that into your role at VMware. You mentioned running Clarity, your design system, kind of like a startup within the organization. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that from a leadership perspective. What does it take to be a startup founder within a
4: big company? So the way we ran Clarity initially, which is our design system, is we ran it outside of the design team at the time. And we ran it with a very small group of three or four engineers who were kind of the co-founders of that project. And most of the time on Clarity, we were definitely under-resourced. We needed a lot more design work in the background and, and so on and so forth. But I think that scrappiness made clarity better, not worse, both as a team and as an outcome, because a lot of decisions that resourcing gives you the luxury to do, or people give you the luxury to do, happen because you have the luxury to do them. So, for example, if I give you two engineers and say we need a design system in 12 months versus I give you 12 designers and, and 100 engineers and I tell you we need a design system in two months, the quality of that design system, the difference between these two, my bet would be it's not going to be very different, not very high at least the initial version of it. You can always move it forward. But the amount of time and money you're spending on it is vastly different. Instead of figuring out the color palette that you can change, tokenizing it and then you can change it later and, and making sure it's accessible, the basic stuff, you're probably gonna spend six months on color research to ensure that the brand meets the whatever, you know. And that's that's good work. That's not, you know, not too I love colors too. But the ROI between a week and six months is very low. So I think there's a good thing. There's virtue to scrappiness. and There's virtue to that in the team as well. So Being able to have a tight-knit team who's moving forward very strongly, who's able to produce a lot of work and take a look at that work and be proud of that work and pretty much be able to point out a big chunk of that work as being theirs, builds a different kind of organization and a different kind of culture. That's still the culture of clarity today, even though we've grown from two and three people.
1: It occurs to me that your early work managing servers, writing code, writing, reporting, all of these things, you're kind of seeing the organization from all perspectives. And when we talk to you about your work at VMware, thinking about clarity and what you've been able to achieve in a pretty short amount of time with limited resources, we just don't see it in a lot of other organizations from other leaders. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about organizational thinking, how you think about how the organization works. And I've heard you say, I realized I'm not a design leader, I'm a business leader. I think that's a very different way of approaching design leadership.
4: I actually had that conversation with Alistair from Atlassian when we were at a design leadership camp, and we both kind of had the same, not aha moment, but the same kind of, I know what you mean moment. I think a lot of times, and this is true for me too, but a lot of times we do things without truly understanding the goal behind what we're doing. The way I understand my role as the head of design at VMware is that my objective is to deliver great user experience to our users so that our business can do well, our users can do well, and that we can actually move both the business and users forward. That's my job. And that job can be achieved in many different ways. Building a design team or growing a design team is the way I know today, but that's not the goal. Bringing design tools into the organization is a way to make sure everyone's productive, but that's not the goal. Doing research and spending time with customers is the way to do this, but that's not the goal. I think keeping the goal in mind is hard to do on a daily basis. It's easy to keep one goal for the high level in mind, but keeping the goals of the different things you're doing in mind is is pretty difficult, actually, because most of the time you're in the middle of things and then you think the process is the goal versus the outcome is the goal. I was having a conversation the other day with a design leader I met actually at an Envision leadership forum, and he was saying that basically we talk a lot about a seat at the table. We've talked about this at design leadership camp. It's probably one of the phrases I hate most in life, but... We talk a lot about a seat at the table, but very few design leaders and designers talk about what table and why they want the seat at the table. It's the feeling of feeling important, which I get it. I I want to feel important too. But that table is generally the executive table. And that table has very little discipline work on it. Nobody cares about engineering that table at its core level of computer science. You know, nobody's discussing algorithms at that table. Nobody's discussing design. They're discussing business and customers. That's all they're discussing. And on that table, as a design team, we don't have a monopoly on customers. The sales teams talk to customers on an hourly basis. The support team talks to customers every hour. The finance team talks to customers because they close deals. The user experience team obviously talks to customers, and that's a good thing, but you don't have a monopoly on customers. And if you don't understand business, then your existence in that table is not very important. So I think, to put it in that perspective, I think a lot of times we need to flip the thinking of A seat at the table from, I want to sit at the table because I have so much to offer versus I want to sit at the table because the table has so much to offer me. You only get a seat at the table when you have so much to offer. Go figure out what that so much to offer is in your organization. It's not a carbon copy in every single organization. Some organizations need better interactions with users. Some need better tooling and internal design work. Some need better linking business to design. I don't know what that is in your organization, but until you figure it out, the table is not going to offer you much and you're not going to offer the table much.
0: So Jihad, you mentioned setting these clear goals and these goals should have a business impact. How do you think about measuring the impact of design and how do you align design goals with engineering goals?
4: The honest answer is I don't have a clear formula yet. I think it's less, or at least in my experience, it's been less important to measure the impact of design on the very, very end business goals. It's very important to keep them in mind. It's very important to understand them and understand how we're heading in that direction. It's very important to know what your work is driving. But I think the thing that's been most important is how do you link your goals to the goals of those in your organization who are driving that business? I have conversations all the time with the leadership team in my organization, both engineering PM, as well as as overall executive team, about what they're trying to achieve. I know the, the overall business vision of VMware and what we're trying to achieve there, and that's important. But what are they trying to achieve, and how you can help them achieve these things becomes what's important, and that's the link between design and the very large business goals that the whole organization wants to have. The middle layer is how do you, as a design leader or design organization, help the whatever the executive team that you're closest to or can work with it could be your VP of engineering, it could be your VP of PM, it could be your CEO, CEO depending on the organization. How can you help them? see a link of this team and this organization is helping me achieve what I try to achieve. Sometimes that's research. We just were discussing internally with our COO research on a specific area of the VMware business, and the insights we were able to figure out are ones that will drive millions of dollars worth of business. These are true insights that we can take action items on. We've taken action items on as a design team and will drive roadmap. But we didn't go to them and said, hey, can we please go do research so we can, I promise you it will drive roadmap and promise you we understand the business. Because that doesn't necessarily matter until it materializes. I know that's not a true answer. We do a lot of measures of user experience and user metrics and a lot of these things. But I think organizations are people. And unless you're able to link your goals to other people's goals, metrics are also read by people. So if they don't care about the metric you've decided, it doesn't matter.
1: A lot of our listeners are in situations that might not be too dissimilar from yours. You're a design leader inside of a company that's very technology focused. So there's a lot of engineering language and values and thinking and so forth. Can you talk about how leading design inside of an engineering focused company, how does that shape your language and the way that you communicate?
4: I think one of the things that has helped me the most is my background in computer science. And I know not everyone can go get a computer science degree in in the meantime, but I think basically understanding the language of whomever you're speaking to and being able to speak to that language changes the conversation dramatically. So when we talk about design, my analogies are code analogies with the engineering team. So when we talk about, for example, I had a conversation this week about how mockups are implementation. You don't talk about implementation until you build architecture. Architecture is the story. We need to figure out the story first. We don't build architecture without understanding the underlying systems. The underlying systems are our users and requirements. We need to understand what they're thinking about to build the architecture and then build implementation, which I understand. I think for a lot of engineers, design is the mock-up because that's the delivery I get. That's what I look at and I end up implementing it. I do understand that the design team goes and talks to users and does something in the middle, maybe research. Even I understand the details. That's great. But at the end of the day, I get a mock-up. The thing that's true, though, is their delivery to the business is code and they don't like to be measured by lines of code, which is fair. Having a shared back and forth empathy makes a huge difference when you're talking across teams. The other one is, I was thinking about about this a lot this week, I wrote about it. I think as designers, generally, we do a lot of work and a good job of empathizing with our users, but we spend very little time taking that skill and empathizing with our cross-functional partners. Part of it is because with users, you prepare for it, you do a research plan, you go outside, you talk to the users, you know you need to empathize because that's the job, and you turn on the mental model of empathizing. With cross-functional partners, that's not always true. The reality, though, is empathizing is a skill that you should be using across the board. You use it in real life, too, or outside of the job. But using it with cross-functional partners makes a huge difference. To be fully honest, that wasn't always the case for me. But I started thinking about this over the last few years, and every room I walk in, it doesn't matter what my previous experience with that person, every room I walk in, I assume everybody has the best intentions, they want to do the right thing, and they're doing their best. They're here because they actually want to do the best they could. They just need context. And my job is to bring that context to the room, and my job is to help them empathize with me and what I'm trying to do, and empathize with them and what they're trying to do. That could be timelines. could be they're new to the organization, they don't understand what I'm talking about. That could be they don't understand why it's taking so long for UX to come back with mock-ups. And it doesn't matter what my opinion is about the thing, but at the end of the day, people have reasons for what they do. And if you assume that they're doing this for the right intentions, figuring out what that reason is and clearing it up becomes a much less frustrating experience. (laughs) I was going to say enjoyable. It's not always enjoyable, but it's a less frustrating experience.
0: Absolutely. I think that assumption of good intent would go a long way towards improving the whole social media sphere as well, and not to mention the divisive nature of uh, political discourse in our country. So you mentioned this empathy with engineers, which is fantastic, and do you have any tips, any pro tips for designers who may not have that computer science background? Are there any ways to learn the language or just communicate better with engineers that you could share?
4: I'm kind of trying to put my engineering hat on and, and try to think what would have been that for me if you've never written code, if you've never done any engineering work, it, it is worth it to take a, it's different for different people, but take a week, take a couple of weeks and take a look at what does it mean to do engineering? Because I think just like you want your cross-functional partners to understand how long it takes to do design and why it takes so long to do design, and we want everybody to be part of our design process, I question to ask yourself, when was the last time you were part of the engineering process and you truly understand what engineers go through to make things happen? The other one, co-location makes a huge difference. Go sit next to an engineer as they work and work with them, not through them to deliver. And I think another aspect of this is having shared, I was going to say goals, it doesn't even have to be goals, shared experiences. I find it that I work best with teams that I'm able to talk to, that I've maybe went out on a team event with. I've had a previous conversations that are not related to the work we're trying to deliver. And I'm not just talking about like fluff conversations about how are you doing and moving on. It could be deep conversations about design and engineering, and but it's not in the context of we need to deliver this, what do you need from me and what do I need from you conversation. So trying to actually build that empathy at a personal level makes a huge difference, especially if that's the engineer working on your project or you were working with them on this project. Even our language is interesting. We say this engineer is working on your project and they say this designer is working on your project versus we're working on a project together. Jihad, you recently had a
1: gathering of all designers and I think it was the first time that You've done that. Is that right at VMware? The first time we've done this globally with all
4: designers at VMware, yeah.
1: Can you talk about what was the thinking about getting all designers together? You also had executives present. There were some developers that were present too. What's the thinking of getting people together and thinking about our many listeners who might need to do something like that or are thinking about that as well? Like, What's the potential value to doing that?
4: As a design organization, we've been growing significantly over the last couple of years, really, which I'm assuming is true for a lot of organizations based on the Envision report on hiring uh, product designers specifically. Out of a team of 100 plus people, 50 to 60 percent of everybody on the team joined in the last 12 months. That statistic is probably going to be true for the next couple of years, too. So most of the team will always have joined in the last 12 months. This means there are a lot of people who we're talking to them about end-to-end stories and the importance of breaking boundaries and silos and working from a user problem perspective versus a product and feature perspective. But there are people who have never talked to each other beyond Slack and email. So value one was actually putting faces to the names and bringing people together, just to what we just talked about, about empathizing with each other as one team. The second one was allowing them to invite their own cross-functional partners that they'd like to be at the conference. So everyone had the chance to invite the people they're working with. So you don't need to explain design. Here's a place where we all can sit down and talk about design together. And not necessarily about design, but about the company's approach to user experience. It was also a place where we can re-emphasize the commitment of the company to design and user experience. So we had our CEO who spoke at the event. We had a few other executives who both attended and, and spoke at the event. And they mixed that vision of business and delivery with how does design move us in that direction. They've both heard how design moves us in that direction. And they've shaped that conversation. So it brought the business perspective into it too. And then we focused a lot of our time on workshops. So shared interests with cross-functional teams that are not around products or services. So this is not about product X or service Y. This is about, you're interested in voice design, you're interested in interaction design, interested in motion, you're interested in how the specific business that we're trying to get into might be impactful to different areas. And these are sessions prepared and delivered by designers on the team. So value three was getting people from different interests to talk in a face-to-face manner. The other one kind of a, not necessarily a top goal, but we offer the chance for a lot of designers who have never spoken at conferences, never spoken at meetups, to speak with a group they're comfortable with face-to-face. Many of those have now gone to submit their stuff to conferences and meetups and can talk about it. So it's expanding the reach of VMware design. But the core thing goes back to, we want the whole team to feel like one team. If we truly talk about end-to-end experiences and one design team, then we have to actually bring that team together to have these conversations. And the way we did it, which was extremely successful, I advise anybody doing this to do it, which is dedicate the third day out of three days to the design team only. So cross-functional partners are invited to the first two days, and then the third day was just about the design team. We did workshops together, broke the team. Some team chose to do karaoke for an hour in that same uh, conference room. It's created a lot of conversations that I still hear about. We talked about this at SHAPE, and now I'm delivering this. SHAPE was the name of the conference. We started the conversation at SHAPE, and here's the outcome out of it. I still see conversations today, three months after SHAPE, or four months after SHAPE, that have started at SHAPE and continue. And hopefully they'll be carried forward in, in the second SHAPE.
0: When you were at Design Leadership Campus last year, we had these breakout sessions where we discussed topics like diversity and inclusion, And on that specific topic, I wasn't actually at that breakout, but Aaron relayed to me that you had some really great tips around making sure that diverse voices are heard at meetings. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
4: Diversity and inclusion is close to my heart, personally, for many reasons. I separate the two. You can have a diverse team that's not inclusive, and you can have an inclusive team, but you don't have diversity. Usually, they're they're kind of related, because if you have a really diverse team you're more likely to have an inclusive one and the other way around. But one of the things that I started doing personally for my meetings that's been really helpful is talking about the conversation about goals. My goal is to listen to as many perspectives and voices before I make decisions. One of the really, really good quotes I like by Satya Nadella, who's the CEO of Microsoft, is, I forgot the exact quote, so I'm paraphrasing, but basically listen, speak last, and be decisive. You want to listen to different voices, bring different perspectives into the room. You want to Be the last one to speak, so you're not dictating the conversation. And then when you speak, you want to make a call and move on. So it's not a place to just argue or not move forward. To do so, at least for us, a lot of our meetings are conversations that are a great environment for people like me. Generally, I think on my feet. Doesn't mean good ideas, but I think on my feet. I'm generally very comfortable voicing my opinion even when I fully disagree and even when I fully disagree with the whole room. And I'm generally more than happy to sit down and have a deep argument about something. What I realized years ago, that that's not true for everybody. Some people have different ways of thinking, some people have different ways of voicing their opinion. And it doesn't mean their opinion is worth less or that their opinion is not important for the conversation. In fact, most of the time you make worse decisions by not including different types of people in the conversation. So what I started doing in my meetings is, as much as I can is I share an early agenda which forces me to think about what am I using this time for. I share that agenda usually in a Word doc, and I ask everybody attending the meeting to take a look and write comments. So everybody has access to the file, everybody can add stuff to the agenda, and everybody can share comments on the agenda. And within the meeting, we spend the first three to five minutes, just in case people are busy, just in case you haven't had a chance, to write comments on the document. And then we discuss these things. What I found out is a lot of voices that usually wouldn't speak in the room, are very comfortable writing comments on a doc, because that's a comfortable way of voicing your opinion. And it allowed me to go and say, you know, Aaron, you wrote this comment on this line, and it seems like that's a disagreement with what we're saying. Could you articulate more? Or could you speak more about it? Which gives them an opening to actually share their perspective. It's been one of the best tips I know to make meetings more inclusive. And by the way, it makes it more inclusive even for those like me who are willing and capable of voicing their opinion. Because one of the side effects is it makes sure that nobody's opinion is lost because we ran out of time or we had to make a call at the end of the meeting. It's always there and we can talk about it. And if I can reach to someone in the background and say, hey, we couldn't get to your comments, but I want to know about it. And it also creates that environment of people feel like their opinions are valued and welcomed. So now even people who don't feel like speaking in meetings feel like they could more because they can tell you're doing your best to actually listen to them. This is not about let's have a lot of conversation. This is about, I truly want to listen to everybody in the room.
1: Yeah, that's great. And you also mentioned that the first two minutes of every meeting, you again provide context to help people to kind of frame the conversation.
4: I think especially as you grow as a leader in the organization, most of the time you have a wider context than anybody else in the room. And it, it might not be detailed context, but you have wider context about the overall vision or strategy than anybody in the room. And I think Context is probably the most important thing for everybody in this room. And sometimes it's context about this meeting, sometimes context about this project, sometimes things that happen in the background that not everybody's aware of. So we spend the first two minutes of every meeting generally on whoever called the meeting, on whoever has the most context about this meeting, setting the context for the meeting and any additional context that people in the room needed. Sometimes it feels like repetitive again and again saying the same thing, but I can't tell you how many times we would say, okay, let's do context setting. And someone would say, oh, come on. Like we all were in the previous meetings. We all know what's happening. And then you start for 60 seconds and someone says, wait, I understood this differently. Can you actually, (laughs) I I didn't realize that's what we were talking about. So even people who were in the room obviously look at things differently. Yeah,
1: that's fascinating. I wanted to just revisit your career trajectory one more time, because I think it's interesting. We talked about your origin story. We talked about the traits that you bring with you into your career today and the way that you approach leadership. But I do think it's worth calling out because we see a lot of folks who want to advance their career. are not quite sure how to do it. And cultivating certain traits, that's good. That's kind of a long game thing. But in the past couple of years, your career's grown quite a bit and your influence has grown quite a bit in the organization. Reflecting back on those two, three years, are there key learnings that you think, okay, this is really what helped me move forward in my career and is going to continue to help me move forward?
4: Yeah, actually, it's interesting. On August 22nd, it's my eighth year at VMware. Mm. Um, uh, I joined VMware out of college, uh, so it's been eight years. It's hard to think about every detail. I think one that really made a difference is I am, I don't know what's a good way to put this, but basically, Um, Uncomfortable being comfortable. So at any point in my career where I felt like I know how to do this, you know, I got this, is a point where I realized I need more. And just thinking about this has really helped me take on more, as much as I can, without necessarily knowing the answer. When I started leading design at VMware a couple of years ago, I had zero ideas about how to transform a design team. And it was pretty scary, pretty uncomfortable, very uncertain. I went back home and every day for six months sitting down saying, I don't know if you can swear in the podcast, but basically <laughs> you can imagine what, and I'm not really sure what tomorrow is going to be about and how to move forward. But then you figure it out and you start learning things and you start dealing with the details and getting out of the details and focusing on the picture and so on and so forth. And it changes your perspective. The second one is, I think, focusing on the things you can change and almost completely ignoring everything you cannot makes a huge difference. I was having a conversation with a designer the other day and she asked me, what's more important about a job? Is it the title, is it the money, or is it the work, the scope and and the influence? And my honest answer is, I like my title and I like my salary and my stock and everything, but the only thing I can actually truly impact is the work. I can keep talking about how I want a new title, I can keep talking about how I want to raise. Someone else controls these two. The only thing I can actually worry about is the work. And you can make a decision that, for example, the money I'm getting paid is not enough, you move on. That's the only thing you can do about it. But if you're not moving on, spending too much time on things you can't change is time you can be spending elsewhere. And the third one is, I think we talk about raising the bar for design, we talk about raising the bar for a lot of things, but raising the bar for your ambition is probably one of the most important things that you can do. When I talk to a lot of designers, the answer is, oh, it's not possible that I can move from here to here, whatever here and here are in this time frame. And the answer is, why? Well, a lot of people don't do it. Well, Sure, but that's why average is not what you're looking for. And it's not a bad thing, that's not what you're looking for, but is that really your ambition? Or are you lowering your ambition to match reality? I mean, ambition by definition is not reality, because that's where you want to go moving forward. But I think raising the bar for your ambition makes a huge difference. If you asked me eight years ago, when I joined VMware as a new college grad, is your ambition in eight years to be where you are today? I would have thought, oh, there's no way. But the reality is, it happened. And it could happen. And probably someone out there can do it faster. So don't even lower your ambition to meet my reality.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> what's inspiring you right now? Are there any books or podcasts or people? It doesn't have to be design or even leadership related, but what's inspiring you?
4: So this is cliche, but true though. I'm really inspired by my team. I don't think I can candidate in the last year where I haven't learned something new from someone on my team. Um, especially inspired by junior designers on the team. I feel pretty old because I'm learning a lot of acronyms that I don't know and and things that I don't know and new apps that I don't know. But outside of that, I'm learning a lot of different ways of thinking that I haven't thought about. But in terms of books and podcasts, the podcast I recommend all the time is Planet Money. It's one of my favorite podcasts ever. Planet Money and the Indicator, which is an offshoot of Planet Money. I think just knowing how the world works in some sense and digging deeper into the finances, the guts of the system, and making one number very interesting over 10 minutes. And the indicator is very inspiring storytelling. It's probably some of the best storytelling out there.
1: And lastly, Jihad, where can people learn more about you and maybe more importantly, read some of the things on your mind?
4: My goal this year is to write once a week. I have not done this really, but I try my best to write once a week. I write at mynameisjihad.com. Jihad with an E. My goal is to continue to focus on once a week at least. Awesome.
1: Jihad Afone, thank you so much for being on the Design Better podcast.
4: Thanks for having me. appreciate it.